to the Octarine Tree, a podcast exploring the meaning of ecology, spirit, and human relationship. From Southwestern Australia, I'm your host, Byron Joel. Greetings, esteemed listeners. Today we delve back into the subject of relict hominids, in particular the Yowie. This is a particular favourite subject of mine, as anyone who's listened to all of the uh, other episodes I've done on it would know. Probably not everyone's cup of tea, I know, but this is my podcast, so deal with it. And today's episode features the founder of the AYR, Australian Yowie Research, Mr. Dean Harrison, who's very well known and respected in this field, in these circles. So following an intense, life-changing experience, Dean has dedicated himself to researching Yowies. His Yowie-related journey has spanned decades, and he's circled the globe to pursue the truth of these elusive beings. In addition, as uh, mentioned before, he created Australian Yowie Research, which is tied into worldwide research groups and has created yowiehunters.com.au as both a comprehensive resource for Yowie research as well as a database of reported sightings. The AYR is the first website on the internet dedicated to the research of the Yowie phenomena and is also the largest and most well-known research organisation in the world on all subjects Yowie related. Many years of hard work and research have contributed to the following of the AYR and it is um, a really valuable database. Now, I know that this subject is not everyone's cup of tea. I just want to say that I'm completely aware of what this subject looks like to the outsider, to those who aren't interested in it or haven't taken a deep dive or who are understandably and naturally skeptical, which is good. It's good to be skeptical of these things because they are so elusive. They are so seemingly fantastical. And um, frankly, I wouldn't want anyone to put their faith in the truth of any idea without a thorough uh, examination. As you hear me state in the following discussion, I can't even claim that I believe in the reality of a flesh and blood biological organism, most likely some um, as yet undescribed higher primate species explain this greater phenomena. As I say, I have my strong suspicions but I can't say, and I'm not insisting on it. All I know is that there is something very interesting going on. Whatever it turns out to be, there's something very interesting and worthy of an exploration. I've gotten in trouble before with the quote-unquote true believer community for saying that, that I don't believe in it, with a capital B. I said once in a previous talk, I don't believe in this with a capital B. And that upset some people and they claimed that I didn't have a right to be talking about it because I didn't believe it. I found that quite interesting. I mean, I'm just being intellectually honest when I say I don't believe in it with a capital B. Um, And then of course, I've had more than my fair share of weird looks from people when I have said that I, I think there is something to it because of course the consensus kind of everyday reality consensus position on this subject is that it's utterly impossible that there is a a flesh and blood organism reality to it and that it's pure make-believe or fantasy or delusion or fabrication. So yeah, I'm in a funny position where I'm in the middle and I realise that I can't claim to know what's going on 
but it fascinates me. All I can claim is that the hypothesis that I put forward, at least, and many people put forward, that there may be relic populations of unrecognised higher primates around the world is uh, utterly plausible. That's all I can say. There's all sorts of other fantastical, bizarre, metaphysical and psycho-spiritual implications, which I go over in episode 12 of the Octarine Tree podcast entitled The Mythopoetics of Extra Sapiens Hominids, where I explore the potential metaphysical, totemic, psycho-spiritual meanings and implications of this phenomena. What I'll say, a challenge to the skeptic. After you listen to this, go to the YouTube channel for the AYR. Go to YouTube and search for Yowie Hunters Witness Audio Reports. And there you will find close to 200 audio reports of interviews with people who have had experiences with these beings around Australia. When you listen to them, realize that for every one person who has had this kind of experience and bothers to uh, document and report what they've experienced, there's likely to be, who knows, another three, four, five, ten people plus who've had similar experiences who don't document them. So listen through a, a few of them. If you're interested, if you're a skeptical, go to that site, listen to two, three, four of them and get a feel for what we're dealing with here. And then appreciate that this phenomena has been described all around the world way back in time. And only one of these has to be real. Only one of these reports has to be describing something quote unquote real. You know what I mean by that? For this to have incredible implications. So anyway, that's about enough ranting and disclaiming from me. Following interview, we did have some audio issues. The connection was a little bit funny and there's that kind of digital distortion every now and then. I've tried to clean it up as best as possible and also Zoom crashed on us toward the end, which is a real pain in the ass. We lost a bit of content from the discussion. If the interview itself seems to end quite abruptly, that's why, because it, it crashed right toward the end. So um, anyway, blah, 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 enough from me. Without further ado, Mr. Dean Harrison. Dean Harrison, welcome to the Octarine Tree podcast. Thank you for joining us. How are you doing this morning? Pleasure to be here. Thanks very much for the invite all the way over there in Australia. Do, doing this research, you really get to know your geography. Mm -hmm. Us East Coast snobs, as I put it, we didn't know much about Western Australia. And you, you do actually have mountains and foliage over there. Who knew? Oh, it's very green in the southwest. The vast majority of the state is semi-arid and arid. Up in the top northwest, of course, you've got the kind of Pindan, wet-dry subtropics. But down in the southwest, it's almost like Tasmania in some places. And it's a veritable island of green, temperate climate between the sea and the desert. It's quite isolated, you know. We've got some different species and we lack a lot of the East Coast species like wombat, platypus, koala. We did have them and we have the remains of their megafauna ancestors, but they didn't make it into the common era for one reason or another. But lots of similarities and lots of differences. And it's very deep. I mean, if you go on Google Earth and have a look, there's seriously deep woodland over there, over here. That's the thing. Uh, 
doing the research, receiving the reports. And Western Australia has really, really stepped up over probably the last five years or so in terms of reports. Now, looking through these areas where the reports are stemming from in Western Australia, uh, you get to know, as I said, yeah, it is really green and lush in certain areas and mountainous. Yeah, well, not mountains by any other standards around the world, but certainly very hilly. I mean, there are areas where you just don't go. People just don't go, even down the, in the southwest where it's relatively highly populated relative to the rest of WA, which is about, I don't know, like three or four times the size of Texas and has a population of three million people. It's bloody sparse. But even in the southwest, there are areas where there's the odd walking trail and you might have the odd adventurous trekker, hiker, but there's not a lot going on. It's very sparse. I think the last report we added on the website was Jarrodale. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that area. I'm very familiar with the area and I heard the report. So you had your own experience, didn't you, that triggered off your interest in this phenomena? Sure. Well, my first experience was in 1995, of course, on the east coast here. Queensland, Gold Coast, Mount Tambourine, Eagle Heights is the location. Right. Coming home at clock at night and the homes, pole home, sleeping uh, backyard, chicken wire fence that went on onto swamp. And as I came home, got out of the car and there's this god awful noise down the back of the house. Now, it was dark, yes. But it was definitely on two feet. It was bipedal and it was in the swamp just beyond the fence. Mm. And, I mean, there's no question. You know what bipedal sounds like, slush, slush, slush as it's walking. Mm-hmm. On top of it was, you know, the, uh, the grunting in this massive diaphragm that was aggressive, aggressive. And it was a vocal capacity that we couldn't match. Mm. There's two things. Now, when you're looking at Australian native animals, you have to, you know, Draw it and which one is it? Okay, bipedal. No. Massive vocal capacity. Well, the only one that I know is probably koala. Yeah. And I know kangaroos can make pretty big noises, but we didn't have either of those in that particular area. And then here comes the whammy number three. It had hands. How do I know this? Because it was picking up the foliage, dragging the foliage out of the ground. You'd hear the roots go mm. and leave it and leave the ground. And then it threw all this foliage hitting the other trees and landing on the ground. And this went on for, we stood there for about probably three, four minutes, five minutes at max. I mean, it was horrifying. It was really horrifying. The reason it was horrifying is because not just because of the unknown, it was the vocal capacity and the anger associated with this vocal capacity. That's something that's actually really interesting in the world of crypto hominology, you know, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Yowie you get all these collective testimonies, which is one of the things that points to the fact that there is something definitely going on with this phenomena. Whatever it turns out to be, and I've got my strong suspicions, it's the collective testimony of countless people across the world and history that speak of the same things and similar things, not just the visuals, but the behavior and the vocals. And the vocalizations are something that don't get such airtime. But those uh, Sierra sounds in the US back in the 70s, those vocalizations are incredible. Like what they can do, whatever it is, whatever it's doing with its vocal cords, it's not human. The following is a clip from an artifact known as the Sierra sounds. It was recorded deep in the heavily wooded Sierra Nevada mountain range in California, 1971 by Ron Moorhead and Al Berry. 
At certain points in the clip the two men can be heard responding to mysterious calls coming from the woods. For a thorough forensic breakdown on this recording by an audio specialist, we direct you to Thinkathunkers YouTube channel as linked in the show notes. Hurrah! Sierra sounds uh, that Ron Moore took in Northern California, mm-hmm. they were analysed by Steele, who was an expert in code and latch, and he yeah. broke it down and said, yes, without any question at all, in my experience, this is an actual language. Just, just to wrap up uh, your initial question of how I got into all this or, or how I was actually dropped in the deep end, mm-hmm. years after my Eagle Heights experience there, that I was in a place called Ormo, and not, most people know this story, but perhaps some of your viewers don't. I was going for a run each night trying to lose some weight. I think it was the end of June 1997. Uh, on this particular night, I stopped instead of running down this path, and I'll cut this as short as I can. Yeah, as I always say, if I hadn't have stopped short that night, and, I, and if I had have run down this path, I wouldn't be here right now. This thing had stalked me. It had ended up chasing me. Again, it had this massive vocal capacity, something that we couldn't match. That sound like a dog to you? That's one big dog. It was roughly about eight feet tall, but the strength, the speed, the aggression that I witnessed that night. And at the time, I thought, this is it. I'm dead. Hmm. I'm die right now, and there's nothing I could possibly do that I could defend myself. There's nothing I could have had in my hands that would have helped me defend myself. This thing was just that powerful. As it happens, you know, I was fortunate and I was on a main field and I got to a street line. Uh, if it wasn't for that, as I said, you know, it, it may have been, a, well, would have been a, a far different situation. But after having experience like that, 
you're looking for answers. Yeah, I bet. Very humbling and traumatizing and confusing and intriguing all at once, I bet. So you started after that, you're hunting for answers and you eventually founded the AYR, the Australian Yowie Research Institute group. Australian Yowie Research, yowiehunters.com. Right. In 25 years, we've compiled 220 years worth of reports. When you accumulate that much history, you know, you notice repetition in observable behaviours. And we can get into that a little bit later. But what I found at the time, there was no answers. It was the embryonic stages of the internet. We still had dial-up, really. I mean, you know, not every single house had dial-up. It, it had internet. Yeah, I mean, there was just nothing available. So I did my, started doing my own research. And at that time, I pretty much the next month, I'd moved to Sydney and I was researching in the Blue Mountains. And I was fortunate enough to meet up with other witnesses and this is how it all started. It's an amazing database. I mean, it really is. It's world-recognised. You've got everything from direct witness accounts to more kind of oblique experiences from the contemporary era all the way back to Indigenous law. And the ones that interest me the most are the colonial era reports. I find them fascinating. They're fascinating. Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. The newspaper reports from the early 18th century, or 1800s, I should say, uh, to 1850s and getting on towards the 1900s, by the 1850s to 1860s, the word gorilla in our newspaper headlines was so prevalent that we were starting to wonder, and the headlines were questioning, whether Australia had its own Indigenous primate. Yes, and some of the reports refer to the Australian gorilla, we're not even questioning, is there an Australian gorilla or what is this thing? It's the Australian gorilla as if the author and is assuming the readership knows what they're talking about. Yeah. One headline was, have they escaped confinement or were they already here? Another one says, is this the Australian equivalent of the African gorilla? Mm. Yeah. But didn't know. Back in those days, we didn't know. We'd have the communication. There are very few roads and towns compared to today. And we're still discovering new things. Yeah, it was Australia was a a wilderness. It was a new world to the European mind. So they had that open-mindedness. I mean, of course, there was some scepticism and critique and suspicion, but there was that openness. They didn't know what they were going to find in the outback, in the wilderness. And there are other interesting Australian encrypted tales from back then, the marsupial cats and talk of the bunyip. It's fascinating. That whole era is fascinating. Yeah, yeah. The other thing back in those times in the era that obviously we both share an interest in because I just find it absolutely fascinating what they went through back in those days because there was no communication. So if you had an experience with one of these things, chances were you were living somewhere remote. You had no one to talk to other than close friends or family and you couldn't communicate with what you observed to other states, for example. Yet in in the other states, the same descriptions were being reported in the newspaper all the time. Yes, and those descriptions matched the Indigenous law and they match the contemporary experiences and they match the experiences of, again, Indigenous, colonial and contemporary reports from many, many places around the world. People who haven't really looked into this stuff don't realise how ubiquitous and widespread this is. It's the rule, not the exception, virtually everywhere. Yeah, yeah. 
Ladies and gentlemen, the inimitable Jane Goodall. I'm romantic. I would like Bigfoot to exist. I've met people who swear they've seen Bigfoot. And I think the interesting thing is every single continent, there is an equivalent of Bigfoot or Sasquatch. There's the Yeti, there's the Yari in Australia, there's the Chinese wild man, and, and on and on and on. And, you know, I've had stories from people who, you have to believe them. So there's something, I don't know what it is. I'm always open-minded. Those descriptions from back in those days, they still match today's sighting. So that's what I find fascinating. It's when you have a mass of data with very, very, very obvious patterns reading through it. One can't necessarily jump to a conclusion to say, well, therefore, I know exactly what's going on. But this is where I believe that if nothing else, and I believe it deserves more, but if nothing else, there is sufficient data to warrant a serious inquiry. Some people just think this is a disposable superstition or hallucination or something. It's just not the case. On that subject, I'd just like to say that over the years, we've been in contact with obviously very high levels of government in different capacities. One level I had to use at one stage against a, what, quite a, an aggressive one that was causing problems, we get to hear a lot of things that the public doesn't and there's certain things that we can and can't tell. Interesting. And uh, there's probably a few things that we don't want to let on either. Mm, okay. Well... All right. <laughs> You've certainly piqued my curiosity. But what interests me is your opinion. You said earlier that you had your own ideas that you're going to keep to yourself for now. Yeah. But I am interested in what your opinion is. Well, I start with that premise that there is more than enough data to warrant an investigation and an inquiry. Something is going on. It fits all the patterns of it being a legitimate phenomena not just a fringe phenomena, not just one-off here or there, not just make-believe or hallucination. There is something going on. I strongly suspect that we're dealing with unrecognised relict populations of hominid species and or that those species, those populations, even if they're not surviving, I suspect they are, but if they're not, they've burnt themselves into the mythic cultural mindscape of Homo sapiens because we evolved with them. We're currently a very lonely species. We're the only species of a once vast radiation of hominids that were all around the world. So regardless of even if we're running into them or not, they live in our mind. I just try to be intellectually honest because I've never laid eyes on one. Like I have very, very strong feelings and suspicions about the whole thing. I just can't say because I've never actually seen one. I've had experiences, one in particular, but I've never laid eyes on one of them. I think you make a lot of relevant points in a lot of your conferences or these seminars that you do. I've got a lot of respect for what you say and your opinions when you do your lecturing. Mm. It comes down to whether there should be any point. It won't happen. It's not going to happen. They know about it. I'll put it as bluntly as that. There's certain areas of government on a very, very high level, mind you, that know about it, and there's no disputing it, but they will not 
under any circumstances if anything, do anything to rock the boat, public hysteria. The most relevant issue here is the impact it would have to the economy. I don't have to run through too many things, but, you know, you got forestry. Yeah, that's that's pretty obvious. Mining. Mining is probably the biggest contributor to the Australian economy. All the tree huggers out there wanting to protect. Then you've got people who wanting to know more. There's people who will view them as something that's kind and, and gentle and, well, they're not always, that want to protect them. Basically, the campers, the outdoor people, parks, Parks will be closed down because all of a sudden, you know, the signs up saying an unsafe area, these hominids have been seen. And then you had to have the people saying, you know, we need an investigation. We need to know, you know, are these things dangerous? Are my kids safe out there in the forest? So you have all this disturbance. And the government, it doesn't want any of that. Oh, you'll never look at the Australian bush. The, the same, same way. way again. Exactly. Never. And it's funny, you know, because I'm, over the last six months, I think we had four of our witnesses have said to us, because of very dramatic, dramatic life-changing experiences, again, as you say, never look at the Australian bush the same way again. They said, the government has to know about this. Why aren't there signs? Well, I'm telling you, there won't be signs because they don't want to highlight it. Human well-being and safety is one thing, and I do think there would be obvious scientific positives to it. I mean, we'd learn more about ourselves, we'd learn more about human evolution, all that is true. I think it would do amazing things to the human psyche in the long run. I mean, it would blow our minds. I mean, people talk about these amazing historical moments where the human mind and identity was impacted positively, like when the first image of Earth from space was returned to earth and there was this big moment of, oh gosh, we're all one and da-da-da-da. I think it would have incredible positive impact psychologically. It'd shock us collectively. No, but it would restrict us. That's the thing. It would restrict us. That's what will happen. I agree. It would. There would be lots of things we'd have to rethink. An inquiry, an investigation. Are they dangerous to humans? You'd have a panic. You'd have you'd have rednecks wanting to go out and cull them. Exactly. Every guy with a ute, a six-pack of beer and a dog will be out there shooting anything that moves. You'd have headhunters with a black market, da-da-da-da-da-da. I wouldn't be pushing for it to be recognised with a capital R by science. <laughs> I, personally, I don't give a shit. I don't think we know. Who are we? Who are we? Like they're out there doing their thing to the degree that our ignorance of them further endangers their survival. I care about that, but I don't really give a shit personally whether or not society at large comes to the party and recognises it. That's, I don't know, that's how I feel. Well, you know, this is where the alternative needs to be put in place. You need the database. You need the information out there for the public, for the public who've had their own experiences. They don't know which, they don't know where to get advice from, where do we go? Well, you come to us. That's where you go. Yeah. You can read and also listen. Listen. Mm. People tell their own stories about their experiences. Yeah. The audio reports are amazing. I've said this before. I'm not a walking human lie detector, but you listen to enough people tell these stories earnestly 
and passionately with very little contradiction, if any, in their uh, in their tales. People who remain nameless, the right, remain anonymous. They don't get anything from talking about it. And there's hundreds of these reports now. And again, you have the same patterns collectively coming through. To me, I mean, it's fascinating and there's definitely something going on. I only hold back in insisting on what I think is going on, again, because I have to be intellectually honest because I haven't witnessed it myself. So in Australia, something that is interesting with the reports from Australia, there seems to be, I mean, they all fit the basic pattern of a hominid, Mm -hmm. a human, like an anthropomorphic form, usually hairier than sapiens. But there's a whole lot of variation as well. I mean, there's big, there's small, there's extremely hairy, there's not that hairy, there's very human face, there's very primitive primate faces. If you had to take all the data that you have witnessed and put it together, how many species would you say are in Australia? Not just variation within the species, because humans ourselves, we look differently to one another, but actually different breeding type populations, different species types. Any idea? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said variation to species type. I think that's an important thing to keep in consideration. Other than that, from what we've observed, we would have to say probably three, maybe four. There's two obvious ones, and that's the eight, nine-foot hominid. Uh, Then you have like the four-foot hominid. And then you'll have something that's more hominin. And you'll, you'll have the witnesses, depending on you know, which species, they will say, you know, this thing was absolutely gorilla and had no neck. It, it had this massive trapezius that came from the tops of the shoulders to the, the base of the head. It had no neck. The massive muscular proportion of this thing, you know, longer, shorter legs, longer arms, at all points at hominid, I mean, something that is really relic, primate type, then you'll get mm. the other version of saying, well, you know, I looked at this and it just looked more human in the face. You know, it wasn't as big and bulky as, you know, you hear people say. It was more slim mm. and didn't have you know, that much. I mean, it was covered in hair, but, it, you know, it's kind of sparse. There's at least three different types. And what comes down to it, and what's really interesting to us, again, is the observational behaviours of these, all of them combined, how they behave. And some of it is quite contradictory. Some don't want to be seen, cause attention to themselves, and don't want to be tracked, etc. Others make really obvious mistakes, either based on poor judgement or something entirely deliberate. They would be masters of their environment, mm. but still fallible. You know, some people say, well, so how, how can something that big not be seen or, or discovered or noticed? Well, I'll remind you that, you know, particularly here on the East Coast, the bush can be so thick that you can you can park a car 20 yards from you and you won't see it. Yeah, and you, then you take a very intelligent animal species that is literally a genius in navigating its environment and has an encyclopedic understanding of its environment and is actively evading detection over massive, vast spaces. People say, well, if they're out there, why don't people see them? Well, they do see them. <laughs> we, we have... We have countless testimony. The physical evidence part of it is more elusive. 
Mm. Lack of bodies, lack of footprints, what well, yeah, relative that, lack that, of that, that is explainable, though. It is totally explainable why you don't find a body. It's quite obvious. We're not dealing with an animal. And if people get off that mindset of you're dealing with an animal, then you'll understand it better. They have family clans. They work in family units. They're seen in families. Where you find one, I'm telling you, where you find one, there'll be another not far away. So if Uncle Charles over there... He's not just going to walk away and leave him there to be picked away, picked apart by prey or found by humans, which is even more detrimental to their survival. He's going to take Uncle Charlie back to the family clan, the family unit, and what were they doing 200,000 years ago? They were burying their dead. Why would it be any different now? I strongly suspect there would be strong culture within their populations, uh, not sapiens culture or even sapiens-like culture necessarily, but culture. Mm. So, yeah, the eastern seaboard has the most numerous accounts in WA, it seems to me that the majority of the accounts are of the smaller variety. We do have the occasional big one here and there, but even the Indigenous law over here speaks of the Mamari or the Jinjari, the little guys, mm. way more than mm. the big fellas. Yeah, sure. Just like Jaredale. Jaredale was one of the small ones too, but aggressive. At very best, they're described as like a trickster species. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, I had an Indigenous uh, gentleman talk to me about them and I was trying to bite my tongue. I was trying to be respectful and not completely chew his ear off and just extract data from information from him. But he was saying, yeah, trickster type and they can be aggressive. And he told a story of an attack and a bloke who copped it on the head, bleeding from the head. They speak with him with serious uh, trepidation. Like you don't go to these places, you don't go at night, you don't take children, you make sure you've got fire because they don't like smoke and fire. And another thing, uh, a lot of people where they get it wrong with this species is they think they're nomadic, but they're not. No, home is always home. Yes, they'll wonder, but home will always be home. A lot of people see them as carnivores and, and nocturnal, but they're not. They're uh, clearly cathmeral omnivores. They're not of all because they've been seen eating both plant-based foods and they can be seen 24 hours around the clock. It doesn't matter. They can move as they want. They can eat what they want. They'll be living off the land like the ancient Aboriginals did. Makes sense, doesn't it? Yes. I imagine opportunistic omnivores and with the capacity to predate and hunt if and when necessary, but it makes sense, especially in an environment like Australia, you've got to be able to eat anything that you can basically, to get the calorie input. Although it's possible, even out in the desert, it's possible if you're a super tough hominid species with a range to walk around and move around and there's enough calories, tubers and grubs and insects and reptiles, let alone the occasional big roo or wallaby or something, there's definitely the calories out there. Look at something the size of a gorilla, which is plant-based primarily. You'd think something that size would require a high-calorie diet. And the other thing I'd like just as quickly say is, that, you know, because, you know, biological, they are no different to any other animal or human, you know, homo sapien, hominid, hominid, canine, whatever. They all have mood swings and you know, not always good. And we do get reports of, you know, very aggressive behaviour. So, and I've been a victim a couple of times. As you know, I got hit in the chest by one in January 2009 and this thing hadn't finished with me. So I am absolutely 100% certain they are accountable for some missing people in the Australian bush. Yeah, it's a terrifying prospect. And being the subject 
of the attention of one of these as I've been, you know there is nothing, nothing you can do Mm. to save yourself. Yes, and I believe that they would see humans as threat because there's numerous species of hominids. And I mean, every year now, it seems that there's a new species discovered of non-sapiens hominid that coexisted with sapiens somewhere around the world. So once upon a time, there was this landscape where we as homo sapiens were living in the reality of sharing the the environment with other hominid species that would have looked a little bit different and very different and occupied different Mm. niches and have different cultural forms Mm. and different behavioral forms. Now, for whatever reason, we came out on top in terms of population. I have my suspicions. I think dogs had a lot to do with it. The sapiens almost symbiotic relationship with dogs had a lot to do with it. But for whatever reason, we came out on top. We occupied the best land and pushed them to the the fringes where they probably, many of them were evolved to thrive in anyway. Anyway, my point is that we've done enough exterminating of them in the past, I believe, for them to see us as threat. So in the event that there is an interaction, it wouldn't take a whole lot to uh, rustle their jimmies and piss them off and send them into fight or flight or attack mode themselves. Yeah, I mean, 200,000 years ago to a million years ago, the world was a big melting pot of mixtures of DNA. And science agreed that a lot of this, well, most of it's got to do with the interspecies sexual exploit, so to speak, where they believe, or science believes, that women were taken at force from other tribes and had mated with, had sex with. And so therefore have all these different species popping up from different genus and et cetera. The other thing is that with the, the fossil records that have been found, the bones, uh, Indonesia or wherever, wherever, Africa, we don't know what was covered in hair. Maybe they were all covered in hair back in those times. It would make sense, wouldn't it? Well, with Neanderthals in particular, I mean, you're talking about a species of hominid that occupied Ice Age Eurasia, much like the Denisovans. Mm. If you're a hominid species living next to glaciers for however many hundreds of thousands of years, pushing a million years out of Africa into Ice Age Eurasia, I would imagine you'd have a pretty dense coat of hair. Right. Even if you had rudimentary clothing, you would still be seriously well insulated. What is known as fact today can be all changed with a new find tomorrow. That's what blows my mind about so many people's uh, positions when it comes to scientific consensus. It's like, by all means, construct your um, model on the available data. But to say that it stops there is to me just ludicrous. I mean, when you look at the evolution of scientific understanding and discovery itself, it's just a bloody constant, sometimes trickle, sometimes avalanche of revision. Oops, you got it wrong. The facts are continually being rewritten. You know, tomorrow's a new day, a new find. And what we know for sure, the more I learn, the less I know. And I used to be an expert. I think that's very important. The more I know, the more I know nothing. Exactly right. Have you ever heard any reports from Papua New Guinea? Yeah. When I go on my Google Earth adventures and I realise that Australia was connected to Papua New Guinea relatively recently and I see Mm. how dense it is, the foliage up there, the forests and fresh water everywhere, surely there's got to be reports coming out of there. Yes, there are. And when 7,000 years ago, depending on your belief system of what scientific opinion this is, you know, the Wallace line through the Tullus 
Forest Strait. Only 7,000 years ago did that get flooded and there was a direct land bridge. And, of course, you know, now we have the Torres Strait Islands, you know, the Solomon Islands, Papua New Guinea, Nauru, Fiji, et cetera, et cetera. And they're saying that in the DNA of all these people, there is a percentage of a hominid that they just can't identify. Now, whether you be in Papua New Guinea or the Solomon Islands, and I'll just refer to Solomon Islands because, you know, I spent some time there, exactly the same story as Papua New Guinea, but these people will not walk the forests at night. The same reason the natives on every continent say you do not walk the forests at night. <laughs> same reason that we found that out the hard way. Fascinating with the discovery of the Denisovan DNA admixture in Australasian peoples. I mean, it's up to 5%, I think, now. Yeah, 5 to 6%, yeah. Mm, the ghost species DNA in different sapiens populations, that's fascinating. So for those listening who aren't aware, within the Homo sapiens genome, there are percentages of genes that aren't sapiens. Every human population around the world except for the sub-Saharan Africans, have a significant percentage of Neanderthal DNA, anything from 1% to 4%, give or take. Then there's the Denisovans as well, which in Australasian peoples, it's up to 6%. Um, and in East Asians, I think it's around 2%. Da, da, da. And then there's the ghost species DNA. They know they have the markers for interbreeding, integration events between sapiens and other species of hominids, non-sapien species, but they don't know what they are because they can't actually, what's the word? They can't uh, associate that DNA with a known species. It could be something we do know. It could be something in the fossil record. It might not. The sub-Saharan Africans have a ghost species in their DNA from an integration event around 30,000 years ago. And the Australasians, Australasian peoples, on top of their Neanderthal admixture, on top of the Denisovan admixture, there is another admixture of a ghost species. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. The implications are just amazing. I think they're really important points you just made there, Byron. Thanks, mate. I mean, we've always been told that non-sapiens hominids could never have made it to Australia because of the Wallace line. And there you have Homo erectus sitting right next door in Java as far back as a million years ago. And now we do know, we know that hominids cross the Wallace line in the form of Homo floresiensis. Whatever their history is, we know that they can do it. It's absolutely plausible, scientifically plausible, that Australia could have been occupied, colonised by a non-sapien species. Not even tens of thousands of years ago, not even hundreds of thousands of years ago, pushing back to a million years ago. So anything could have happened. Another thing is that, I mean, I know this is ambiguous. It's ambiguous because the fossil finds are pretty small, but there's that thing called Gigantopithecus, right? And now I know this is banned around America mm. and not everyone agrees with it. Um, but this was said, I mean, it depends again. I mean, science and biontology, they can all change tomorrow, can't it? But this has lived up until only, only 12,000 years ago. And on top of that, found in Indonesia not that long ago, fossil records. Now, if it was as close to Australia as Indonesia, well, it's right on the bridge. Now, I bring this up for a reason. It's because, and again, I'll just quickly say, we don't know enough about it based on you know, jaw fragments, et cetera. But 
what science says that you know these things were huge, robust creatures, and they were the closest associated primate with these was orangutan. So if that's the case, and the case of the majority of the colouring of the yaoi is that orangey, and always explained by witnesses, it had the orangutan type hair. Now, hmm, just thoughts here. Could that be associated? Your opinion. What do you think? Uh- Again, one has to premise by saying we don't know and I don't know and it's all conjecture, I guess. But to me, whether it is or turns out to be a direct lineage, whether or not one day we can point to data and say, aha, now we know that is where it came from. To me, it's about the plausibility, the scientific plausibility, the potential, the could have. In terms of lubricating the cultural mind, the human culture, to say this is a definite possibility as opposed to an absolute impossibility. It's much like the Wallace line. That was an impossibility. No, sorry, non-sapiens or pre-sapiens hominids just could never have occupied the Australian mainland because of the Wallace line. Well, now we know that it's utterly plausible that they could have. And I believe it's likely, frankly. So yeah, to me, I just have to remain intellectually humble and say, I don't know. But, uh, It's the possibility that I find really fascinating, like the reality of living in the world as a human, a sapiens, in a world occupied by all of these different species that lived contemporaneously with one another. Once upon a time, they thought that Homo sapiens was 100,000 years old, anatomically modern humans, and then it was 200,000, and now it's pushed back to 300,000 years. That's hundreds of thousands of years of anatomically modern humans living in a world with giant megafauna, living in a world with a magical mind space, pre-scientific, and I don't say this with any judgment, there's no better or worse than, I don't think we've got it all figured out just because we live in a scientific materialist culture, but I believe there was more of a magical, symbolic, mythic mind space. There's megafauna all over the place, these bloody like monsters, and other human species hundreds of thousands of years of that kind of environment anything could have happened what we're told about the history of humanity and the picture that is painted is so dry relative to what actually could have happened anything could have happened hundreds of thousands of years of anatomically modern humans living in an environment completely different to the controlled environments of today's world Throughout the fledgling years of paleoanthropology, it was believed that our species, Homo sapiens, evolved relatively recently. In one event, probably somewhere in northeastern Africa, then migrated out in a single wave to spread across the world. A world that, for the most part, was long empty of other hominin species. That is to say, all of the bipedal great apes that evolved from the Chilka, the chimp human last common ancestor, roughly six million years ago. However, As studies continue, numerous revelatory discoveries in archaeology, anthropology and genetics have challenged that stale narrative. Increasingly, the mounting evidence paints a far more complex picture of a genetic swarm of numerous interrelated species living contemporaneously, often inhabiting the same regions while occupying different niches and in some cases even interbreeding. Unlike virtually every other clade of organism whose representatives display a rich radiation of interrelated forms, Homo sapiens are the last recognised living member of a once diverse and widespread hominin family tree. 
Furthermore, the age of anatomically modern humans as a species has been pushed back from an estimated 100,000 years before present to an approximated 300,000 years. And so it is now recognized that our species is the result of several populations interbreeding with other species in multiple regions over hundreds of thousands of years, and now we have the genetic markers to prove it. So imagine for a moment, a world in which there were numerous human-like species of various sizes, forms, behaviors, cultures, and consciousness. Some large, robust, cold-adapted super-predators, others peaceful herbivores, Others still are relatively tiny, standing at approximate three foot tall at maturity. Social species, solitary species, semi-arboreal species, many exposed to and aware of each other. Some populations mingling and merging, others likely warring to the point of extermination. The assumed age of extinction for many of these non-sapiens hominin species keeps crawling forward. Some now suspected to have survived into the late Pleistocene or even early Holocene. And despite our historical tendency to portray them as brutish troglodytes, there is compelling evidence to the contrary. In 2010, in a Siberian cave, a tooth and finger bone were discovered and dated to an approximate 70,000 years before present. An inquiry into their genetics surprised the paleoanthropological world by revealing a hitherto unrecognized species of sapien-like hominin, the Denisovans. Within the same sedimentary strata were found a green stone bracelet with a hole drilled in it by a steady state drill and a thick awl made from bone and presumed to be used for sewing hides into a garment. This suggests at least one non-sapien species was inventing and employing high cultural mechanical techniques as far back as 70,000 years ago. Assuming that anatomically modern humans are 300,000 years old, that gives us more than a staggering 250,000 years of our species living in a comparatively very different world to us indeed. Add to this equation all the now extinct megafauna that they shared the planet with, and one starts to get the picture. Compared to the controlled environments of life in our modern world, Ice Age Earth looked like something out of a fantasy novel. Can you see the possible effects living in that reality could have upon a human mind or a culture at large? Can you feel how different our ancestors' collective sense of self and other would have been? I suggest that as a result, the sapiens' mind became hardwired to expect sapiens-like, but non-sapiens' others, to co-inhabit their world, and that this impulse is what inspires so much of our historical preoccupation with fantastic, anthropomorphic, non-sapien species. 250,000 years, anything could have happened. What other exotic, extinct hominin species have we yet to even rediscover? Inevitably, there are many. What cultures could they have had? What art and language types? What feats could they have achieved? What could have they built? Could they have even domesticated now extinct animal species? How did they express their unique forms of genius? 250,000 years. Think about it. The mind boggles. But could you imagine trying to convince anybody in today's world about megafauna unless there was proof. Now, a lizard that was the size of a bus, who's going to that? Come on. But we do have fossil records. They did exist, but we also have fossil records that the Neanderthals and, and all the pre-hominids did exist. And so if, if that's not too much of a reach because the proof is there, now, just, just retract that for a second and think, well, hang on, what if some of these are still here? It's not that much of a reach.
This is why I'm fascinated by it, because it's entirely plausible. There's not a whole lot I can argue about this fervently, but that I can. I can hold that position with utter confidence that it is entirely plausible. I listened to a Jane Goodall interview, and the interviewer asked her if she thinks there might be any as yet unrecognised species of ape. Um, we haven't, and you know, it's so so peculiar. I want to believe there is a creature, whether it's a, a yeti, whether it's Sasquatch, whether it's the Yari in Australia or the wild man in China. Um, so many people, especially indigenous people. And my best story, which I'll tell very quickly, I went to a place in Ecuador, flew over miles and miles of untouched rainforest landed with a little community of about 30 people and in the area there were six, seven such little communities and the only communication between them were these hunters who went from village to village with news like the old minstrels and so I asked the translator next time you see one of these hunters um, please ask them if they've seen a monkey without a tail that's all I said and so this guy had no idea where I was why I was asking. And about six months later, I received a reply that four of the hunters had, and they're all separate from each other, uh, they'd all seen monkeys without tails, and they walked upright, and they were about six foot tall. Would I like to see one? <sighs> Careful what you wish for, kind yeah, of? Yeah, well, you know, from someone who has had the experience, and many of them, it is unnerving. It really is. <laughs> After you've experienced what we have firsthand, wow. Even just walking down a track at night in a known location, a known location when we've proven they're there, uh, it's unnerving. You're like a child. Now, thank yeah. God for thermal cameras. Back in the old days, all we had was our you know, sight sensors, our ears. What we could see, what we couldn't see was... Well, we couldn't see anything at night time, could we? We had a, a camera of about a three-metre range and that was it. That's all we had back in the 90s. There was no technology, but we are out doing this. You know, now, a lot of the noises that we heard, you know, now having the thermal cameras, we probably discount easily just to you know, normal noises of the bush or small rodents or animals. It's amazing how a small animal can make so much noise. But... Today's technology and the thermals, it is a game changer and we've proven that. And we proved that only a few months ago with the footage that we took in Springbrook. That is very, very interesting footage. I urge anyone who hasn't seen it to go take a look at it. It's the best footage I've ever seen come out of Australia, without question. Absolutely. But the thing is, I mean, yeah, here's the, the irony. Buck Buckingham on our team, he'd never used one of the thermals before. We, we invested in five of these units. It was about 11 o'clock at night and we'd, we'd track these beings. Of, you're, you're always wondering what sort of you should be using for them. We would track them and we tracked them because, you know, my experience in Springbrook for the last, you know, 20-odd years, we knew the signs. So we found the signs and we said, yep, they're here, they're here right now. Let's get out there. So we did that. So we got out there at 11 o'clock at night Buck Buckingham had picked up one of the cameras and said, how do I use it? Gary Lynn showed him how to use it and off he went. He walked away. 20 minutes later, we get a radio feed saying, I have something and it's looking at me. 
Now, me being me and being around for a long time, you get a little bit sceptical from hearing a lot of people with a lot of claims. Dear friend Buck is, but I thought, you know, maybe he's just seeing things. And then he went silent for a few minutes and he came back and said, now I have two of them. And he said, yes, they are bipedal. Uh, they are right in front of me. And then Gary Lynn said, do you want me to come and be with you? Yes, please. So with that, Gary Lynn picked up his thermal and off he went. And as he's getting close to Buck, these two look up and they see Gary and they turn and they walk away. Now, interestingly, this is the point. You don't have to always hear them. Buck was randomly panning. He wasn't looking for anything in particular. He was just panning around with the thermal cameras. About 100 metres away from camp, I'm guessing, maybe a little bit more. And he's panning, he's panning, and he's panning. And he's doing this for, you know, 20, 30 minutes. And, and these things turn up. They made no noise when they left. If he didn't have that thermal camera, we would have never have known that they were there. Over here, one of the colloquial names for them is Featherfoot because they don't make a sound. Yeah. One of the common names for them in Indigenous languages around the world is Master of the Woods, Master of the Forest. They know what they're doing. And, mate, I won't hold you much longer. So where can folks go to check out all this data? Yowieresearchyowiehunters.com. There's a lot of uh, content. Yes. All right, mate. Well, thank you again. Okay. All the best. Same. Thanks, mate. Bye. Besides the feature presentation with Mr. Harrison and Byron's self-obsessed ranting, you have also heard clips from the following. The Sierra Sounds by Ron Moorhead and Al Berry, 1971. Bone Chilling Howl by Thinker Thunker, November, 2019. Sapiens Life Amongst Other Hominins from the Octarian Tree YouTube channel. Jane Goodall on How Bigfoot Might Be Real. Yahoo Entertainment, 2018. Remember dear listeners, that the world is not just stranger than we imagine, but stranger than we can imagine. Why not allow that we do indeed partake in a still enchanted world? Why not accept a dose of mystery back into one's worldview? Anything is possible. After all, you are a primate currently receiving non-local life lessons from a disincarnate robotic voice. Loosen up. Suspend your disbelief. Go play dress-ups, drink mulled wine and dance ecstatically around a bonfire. Beat drums and cry. Scream into a well. Fart during a lecture. Tell a cop you love them. Get an enema. Hug a tree. No, kiss a tree. And thank it for everything the vegetative kingdom has ever gifted you and your kin. Walk deep into the woods and speak to the Fabians as if they were really listening. Visit your ancestors. Listen with your bare feet. Whittle a wand of wood. And perhaps the most important fundamental to re-enchanting one's worldview? Chant. 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 We leave you with a quote from Shakespeare's Hamlet. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Horatio.